0: Hello, hello. Welcome to At Home with the Intuitive Cook, the podcast giving a voice to everyday home cooks like you and me. Join me around the kitchen table as we chat about finding cooking ease and inspiration beyond rules and recipes and the noise of celebrity chef culture. It's not rocket science, it's just dinner. I'm Katerina Pavlakis, the Intuitive Cook and at home with me today is Kirsten Gibbs. Kirsten is a boss disappearer. Yes, really. She helps bosses structure their businesses in a way that allows them to step away when they choose so. She lives in England and is well-traveled, and as you'll see from our conversation, she is really passionate about cooking that is sustainable, resourceful, and practical, and full of flavor, of course. Welcome, Kirsten. Let's get started. My very f- First podcast conversation. Oh, blimey,
1: blimey. Good for you. I'm very pleased to be here, though. Then on the first, I'm honored to be the first.
0: It's lovely to have you as the first. Why don't we get started with food memories? One of my favorite subjects. Do you have like a really early memory of food or cooking, or
1: I think probably the earliest thing i can remember about food is my dad cooking us beans on toast while my mum was in hospital having one of my younger siblings but an early cooking memory is that when i was about 4 there were 4 of us children then and we all had our own mixing bowl and rolling pen and wooden spoon and we spent a happy afternoon making pastry all four of us at the table with my dad helping and what i always remember is because i was four and i was slightly better at it than my two-year-old brother who just ended up with this enormous piece of dough because he kept adding flour and then it would get too dry and then he added water and it would get too wet (laughs) until it just got bigger and bigger and bigger but of course it had to be cooked and then eaten by my parents all of them had to be cooked and eaten by parents so I pity them for that day but it was fun I do remember that it was a lot of fun
0: did you eat any of it
1: probably but I I can't remember that bit I could just remember the 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 four of us all cooking together which was
0: nice which is interesting that you remember the togetherness isn't it because Mm. I, I keep thinking about this how how cooking has become a bit of a a lonely thing for many of us these days, you know, this sort of slaving away in the kitchen. And cooking didn't used to be like that. Cooking used to be something for people to do together.
1: Yes. I mean, not so much if you were kids, perhaps, but certainly, you know, once you're grown ups. I wonder if that's partly architecture. You know, when we moved into this house, for example, it had a tiny kitchen at the back that really two of you couldn't be in to cook because it wasn't designed to work that way it was designed to be the housewife was going to do all the kitchen stuff in the kitchen and the kitchen wasn't there to be used for anything other than working in whereas now we've had the extension to be honest i still cook but i can at least be talking while i'm cooking
0: yeah you know i i remember sort of doing my homework on the kitchen table and things like that so maybe i wasn't cooking when i was a kid but not normally anyway, but I was kind of there
1: around it in the kitchen. Yeah. Same for me, actually, because we were we were a big family. So we ended up in big houses and they always had a breakfast room as well as a kitchen. So the breakfast room was where we ate. The kitchen was where all the cooking happened. But like you, everyone did their homework on the breakfast room table. So you were around. Everyone was around. And that's thing that's really lived with me I never found it possible to work in libraries because they were too quiet I didn't want interruption but it's the hum of noise around you is quite a good environment not radio but just general the sound of people around
0: yeah the hum of life I find this too I, I find the sound of people doesn't distract me at all or doesn't bother me, what bothers me are sort of noises like car alarms going off and things like that. That is not, not life itself.
1: Yeah. So I guess that's probably my earliest cooking experience, <laughs> making really bad pastry, and making my parents eat it.
0: Well, I think a lot of us started by, you know, experimenting with pastry. And do you remember how, or when you learned to cook?
1: Well, officially, I guess at school, because when I was at school, we girls still did domestic science. And that still meant actually learning how to cook. So we did learn how to cook from the age of 11 onwards. So I got to the point where I could make, I probably still could make rock cakes with my eyes closed. (laughs) We did a lot of that, even though actually I spent at least a whole term banned from cooking. My job in cookery lesson was to clean the ovens because I'd turned up without the right ingredients one week. So I was banned for quite a few weeks after that.
0: Oh dear, that's quite a severe punishment for not having the right ingredients.
1: I think it was, especially as, you know, my family were by no means wealthy. And um I think we'd been asked to buy Haddock to make fish pasties. Me being me had left it till the very last minute to say to my mum, Oh, we need some Haddock. <laughs> I need some Haddock for tomorrow. It's me all over. But secondly, I remember her thinking and me thinking as well, you know, Haddock was an expensive fish to put in a pasty, you know. But anyway, that's the reason. And um I just listened to them all learning to cook while I cleaned up and very Cinderella-like, but it didn't bother me.
0: <laughs> Did that in any way put you off cooking? No.
1: You know, it It was good, you know, knowing how to make pastry, scones, bread, all those sorts of things. It's just really useful to, to know how to construct a pie. It was a useful skill to learn. And I, we were probably among the last to properly learn that at school because... I know my sister, who's four years younger than me, she didn't. My brothers didn't, even though they went co-educational and they tried a term of the boys doing cookery and the girls doing woodwork. But, uh, you know, that's the feeling I got, that in the end, cookery kind of disappeared from school and became nutrition. So you learn about what food is and what it does to you, but you don't learn to
0: make it. Which is a kind of odd way to go about things, isn't it?
1: Which is how we've ended up with all the things that Jamie Oliver was up against, of people not knowing that, that you could eat any part of a chicken other than the chicken breast, that the rest of it was also edible. You know, there's some atrocious stuff has happened since I grew up, basically.
0: It occurs to me that while there is so much conversation about, you know, eating sustainably, and everybody sort of scrambling to to reduce their meat consumption if we only ate you know the whole animal this would be already just on its own a lot more sustainable because you know a chicken only has two pieces of breast and maybe two legs so what happens with the rest of the chicken exactly so to waste that or to send that to pet food manufacturers or whatever Uh, For me, eating sustainably has to involve going back to actually consuming the whole whole thing. And that doesn't only go for meat. It's like the same thing with, with vegetables, you know, broccoli stems and cauliflower leaves. All these things are perfectly edible.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I survived as a student on that kind of thing. So I remember when I was in Manchester, actually, it was after I was a student and I was unemployed and didn't have a lot of money. And there was a greengrocer not far from where I lived. And I remember I was looking at vegetables. I must have been looking hungry because he just handed me a whole load of cauliflower leaves that he'd cut off the cauliflowers for display and just said, you can have those.
0: (laughs) So what did you make with them?
1: I can't remember. I probably just stir fried them with some noodles and some bacon and some ginger. Oh, and actually one of my favorite meals in those days was Liver and bacon with ginger and noodles it was nice.
0: Liver and bacon with ginger and noodles. So how did you get onto the ginger idea?
1: I think I just added it one day and thought, hmm, that's quite nice. Sort of maybe just trying to go for a slightly chinese vibe because of the noodles. But that worked pretty well. I mean, in that period, I was quite poor. So I was eating one meal a day, effectively. So it would be something like that, which was quite good.
0: Yeah, sounds sounds very good to me. With veg, obviously. What kind of veg would you have had?
1: Well, cauliflower leaves, anything I could afford, really. So, yeah, I've always loved veg. And I think, again, that comes back to school. Because I went to school at a time when school dinners were what I'd call proper school dinners. They weren't pie and chips or you know they weren't fast food for schools it was a proper meal with veg and I loved school meals I loved the really wet well-cooked greens that were really green really dark I loved them and I I learned afterwards that that is one of the ways to cook them you either cook them very quickly or you cook them for a long time it's the bit in between that's bad
0: Yes, exactly. One of my favorite pasta sauces is kind of cooking broccoli with anchovies mm. until it all kind of falls apart, and then you just quickly mash it with a fork, and and that's a lovely pasta sauce, really. Mm. So, but you need to really cook the broccoli properly until it falls apart.
1: Yes. Yeah. No, that sounds lovely. So yeah. So I'm I'm very happy that I learned to cook in school, and I. Did probably learn to cook a bit at home. I mean, I learned how to cook chips from my dad, thrice cooked chips. And I can remember being asked by my mum one weekend to cook the Sunday dinner and thinking, Oh, no. I said, I don't know how to do that. And she said, you've seen me. And I did manage. But I remember thinking that wasn't the best way to learn, just to be told, you're going to do it. But which I've carried through into... What I do now because part of what I do now don't just leave people to learn by osmosis show them show them what to do and then let them have a go by themselves but don't just leave it to chance essentially anyway so yeah I can't remember a tie. I can't remember not knowing how to cook which is interesting and have you
0: always since then cooked for yourself always
1: I mean you know we might have fish and chips We might occasionally go to a restaurant, hardly ever, really. I'd rather cook at home. To me, going to a restaurant is about having something that you couldn't cook for yourself at home because you don't have the equipment or you don't have the ingredients because they're not something you'd use every day. But not wishing to boast, but perhaps actually to boast, I've never had a meal in a restaurant that I couldn't have cooked better at home.
0: Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I I often feel the same. It's very few restaurant meals that were so exceptional that very often, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I could have done this better at home. Yeah. And it wouldn't have been so expensive. (laughs) And the wine would have been better. And, you know, all that. (laughs) All of that.
1: All of that. I mean, there are things that I think I wouldn't do at home. I probably wouldn't do lobster. So there are a few things. And especially as, I mean, one of my bugbears, I was vegetarian for quite a few years and it was before being vegetarian got quite so popular. And the worst thing that would happen was essentially you'd go out to a restaurant or something and what you'd get was the vegetables that were part of the meal of what everybody else had. That's it. (laughs) That's got a lot better.
0: Yeah, that is true. Well, obviously it's all about vegetarian cooking these days, isn't it? And, and there is some really great vegetarian cookbooks around. And yeah, for me, coming from Greece, my background is a different culinary tradition with vegetables because I think in Britain, a lot of the time the veg is the side dish. And in Greece, there is a lot of vegetable dishes, a lot of dishes with pulses and, you know, the kind of, national dish of Greece is actually bean soup. Mm, Lovely.
1: No, I agree. I was thinking about this the other day as well because uh, one of my favourite things which I learned when I went to Spain as a student and just seeing how different countries eat is so interesting when they're, you know, not in a restaurant, at a home. And I stayed with a family and every night we would have a meal and it would start with either a salad or what they're called verduras which was basically courgette, greens, potatoes, cooked together, served with oil and vinegar. And then you would have your piece of meat, which would might be one piece of meat on a plate, and then you'd have your pudding. And I thought that was very interesting because a tradition in this country is you fill up on stodge before the meat, so Yorkshire pudding or those kinds of things. So you had something to fill you up first and then the expensive thing the meat and then something after and i think the mediterranean thing is that you you fill up on vegetables and the meat is that bit of an extra even if it's in with it it's it's a flavour rather than a main component
0: yes exactly and and therefore you use a lot less meat yeah i was talking okay. to someone the other day again about this idea of trying to reduce meat consumption and Gosh, we need to make all these meals without meat, and I don't have enough ideas. And I was saying, well, you could also just reduce the amount of meat by half. Like if you're making a stew, put in half the meat and extra vegetables. If you're making a hamburger, you can grate in some veggies into the hamburger. And this is again, you know, something you you will often do in Greece anyway. And suddenly you have halved your meat consumption without necessarily you know having to cook without meat
1: yeah yeah exactly when i was vegetarian i think i also was whole food at the same time i got to know all the pulses and all the things you could do and even though now we do eat meat what we've been doing recently is reducing the quantity but upping the quality so buying half a free-range pig that's been more or less hand-reared as far as we could see somewhere in wales and because it's better to have it little not very often but much nicer which is why i went vegetarian in the first place it wasn't about not liking meat or being squeamish it was about animals deserve to have as good a life as they can just the same as we do you know
0: they are obviously farmers who do rear Animals in exactly that way. And thankfully it's now much easier, I guess, with the internet that farms can sell direct mm. to people. So if you just do a little search, you, it is not difficult to find good sources of meat from small producers. And I think this is, you know, like think this is an organization, isn't it? It's not just a slogan, farms, not factories. Yeah. That idea that factory farmed anything, whether it's pigs or almonds is just bad for the environment and it doesn't really matter if it's plants or animals it's just terrible yes and and a lot of damage is being done
1: even recently i read this brilliant book called what your food ate which is about what's in the soil so what are the plants taking up from the soil and how are they doing that and how have our farming practices changed that over the years and you know we have been devastating the soil around the world with ploughing and artificial fertilisers. And it's not so much that they're artificial, is that it's it's like everything. We pick three things when actually there's a million things going on in the soil and we only replicate three of them. So everything else is lost, all the, the bacteria and the fungi that are also transforming chemicals and minerals from the soil so that the plant can take it up which means we can eat it or our animals can eat it so we've we've actually made our food less nutritious as well by farming this way but it is so easy to put back all you do is say it's not a factory you rotate you have lots of diversity you have animals moving pasture very quickly you're not from day to day, not year to year. In fact, strangely enough, it's the way we used to farm. <laughs>
0: it's kind of... Strangely enough, yes.
1: Uh... I've been to Italy and Spain and Austria. And one thing we noticed, I've noticed in all those places that even quite big towns, there's a, there's a whole tranche of small holdings. It's not big farms. It's not like a green belt, which is not really doing very much. It's kind of like there's lots of small farmers. And this is where these lovely markets that we love in these places come from. It's lots of small producers in a kind of green belt around the city, bringing their stuff in to market. And we just don't have that in the UK anymore. Everything's got big. Everything has to be consolidated. But Graz in particular, you know, the the farmer's market was amazing with the farmer's who actually grow the stuff, bringing it in to sell with their family? You know, not using. You know, you go to a farmers' market in this country, and it's often some Eastern European on minimum wage selling it for what turns out to be more or less a corporate.
0: Yeah, you're right. Things have sort of developed quite differently in the UK as opposed to a lot of other places in Europe. Maybe because we we look up to to the United States so much because of course you know factory farming is a very big deal in America and has been for for a long time hmm. yeah
1: anyway so that's made me even more conscious of what I'm eating and where I'm buying it from so we don't really buy from supermarkets anymore and I even swapped my veg box from odd box which was a pretty good thing they use vegetables that would otherwise go to waste quite often at farm level so they're picking crops that the supermarkets don't want so the farmers are left with them. So odd box is a very good thing. But I realised now I want to go even further and so now I've I've bought my Riverford box because they're organic and regenerative and employee owned. So, you know, they hit a lot of the values I'm after. And as you know, I get quite a few other of my staples like my olive oil and my almonds and my coffee and my sugar from sale cargo. I get them from the equivalent of a farmer's market, but globally and shipped by sale,
0: which is lovely. Tell us a bit more about that. Hmm.
1: Well, I met uh, Alex, who runs this particular organisation, at a meeting that I got chatting to her and thought, oh, this is a fascinating thing. So what what she does is effectively coordinate um, a group of producers, a ship, and a group of uh, what she calls port allies who are people in small ports around the UK and Holland and Portugal probably and France who undertake to effectively sell the produce locally to their customers. As a customer what happens is I buy in advance, so I will buy 15 litres of olive oil and wine and almonds and all the rest of it And I pay right up front so that they know, the producer knows it's all been paid for. The ship will pick it all up and then they will drop it all off where the port allies have bought. So between me and the producer, there are basically two, maybe three people. So it's a much shorter supply chain, which means although it is a much more expensive way to do things, the producers get paid more, the ship makes a living the poor allies make a living hopefully the broker makes a living and I get really really good produce for not much more than it might cost me somewhere like Waitrose.
0: yeah that's interesting isn't it when you don't go for the kind of rock bottom worst quality if you just go one step up going more steps up from there isn't really that much of a of a huge difference
1: and it's a whole interesting thing and it's not as reliable because the wind is not as reliable so this year we were expecting a delivery mid-June it's not here yet because the northeasterlies meant the ship could not get away from Holland (laughs) So, so you know it's all part of the fun it's you're not buying perishables so it doesn't matter but it's a really nice alternative way of doing it they're basically setting up an alternative supply chain which is going to be there when the oil runs out and is kind of partly the old-fashioned way of doing things but actually better than the old-fashioned way of doing things because we're not exploiting anyone so it's a really good thing new dawn traders if you want to find out more
0: right okay i'll look them up And I mean, it's interesting that as on the one hand, it seems that everything gets more and more industrialized, there are also all these new alternative ways that if you look for them, you can find ways of doing things more sustainably. That does not involve corporations again, because of course, this is one of those things now that you know, sustainable eating or carbon neutral and all these things have become a buzzword. Everybody is also jumping in to to get a piece of the cake in terms of making money from it. So unfortunately, that that is what happens when something becomes the buzzword yeah. of the day.
1: Yeah. What's nice, though, is during lockdown, I was determined that I wasn't going to buy anything from Amazon or, you know, You needed to have things delivered, and that's how I found Oddbox. But when when you really look, this is the beauty of the internet, when you look, you can find independent suppliers of almost anything. Clothing and bookstores. You don't have to go for the first thing that appears on the search engine results. Just dig a bit, and they will all be there, because the internet is there for everyone. So I was really impressed by how much I was able to
0: find, and have stuck with that on the whole yeah it's that that human touch that despite everything being taken over by machines it's never going to no to lose its appeal so that was a lot about sourcing food so <laughs> what are you eating today or this week
1: well so last week i started the zoe program which was quite interesting. So I've been on the run up to it. I've been having my blood sugar and blood fat and gut bacteria measured and tested and things. So now I have a little app that says things that are good for me to eat, things that are not so good for me to eat. So it's basically loads of veg, not very much meat and very little processed food. So far this week, what did we have today? We had tuna and lettuce and a coleslaw that I made that was red cabbage and celery and kohlrabi and carrots and poppy seeds and sunflower seeds and all sorts of things so it's basically loads of veg and I'm just finding different ways to get as many veg as possible in without adding too much fat or too much sugar and it's been really interesting the only thing I don't like about it is they want you to meal plan and I hate meal planning I'd much rather just go, what have we got? Oh, I know, I'll do that. And that's what I tend to do, basically. So it's what we'll be eating this week is what we have in the house, essentially, which will come from the veg box and stuff in the larder and stuff in the freezer. It's just learning to put it together in different ways than I have been up to now.
0: And this is interesting how having this kind of, I mean, one could even say restriction or different guideline, it is not only a restriction, it's also a kind of a, a reason to become more adventurous exploratory. or exploratory or experiment more, yes, and find new ways and new flavours.
1: And Yes, and I think what's quite good about it is it isn't meant to be a restriction. They will say there's nothing you can't eat. It's just... Some of the things you might have eaten, you want to eat a lot less of. You have them less frequently. But also what's been interesting so far is learning the whole thing of, oh, if I have a piece of cheese for my gut, that's not good. It's not bad. It's not brilliant. But if I eat it with a pear or half a pear and half an apple and some almonds, suddenly it's not bad at all. So you're learning how to combine things so that you're optimising what's good for you, which is very interesting. I am finding that interesting. It's a bit like gaming it in a way. (laughs) It's kind of, how can I make all this stuff better for me? And uh, it is interesting. Well,
0: exactly. I certainly do like a cauliflower pizza base.
1: Mm. I haven't tried one yet, but I I probably will get to it. (laughs) But, you know, it is just fascinating how you go, oh, if I eat that on its own, if I I eat a piece of bread on its own, it's not so good for me. It's not the same for Stephen. This is partly why I'm doing it because, like, Stephen's got hollow legs and we eat the same thing. Obviously, he's more active than me, but clearly it doesn't have the same effect. So, you know, a piece of bread's not great, but put some uh, pumpkin seed butter on it and again, have it with some with some olives or some fruit, and suddenly it's not so bad. You can eat it. It's just that you wouldn't can't eat it the way you really liked to eat it, which is slathered in butter. Or you can, but not very often. It becomes a treat. It becomes a treat in a way. That's a similar thing to the meat. The meat becomes a treat, rather than a everyday thing. So you know what we're eating this week is going to be mostly vegetables and just depends on what i've got so i've got some black beans soaking don't know what yet but it might be some kind of cuban style black bean
0: soup oh that sounds good
1: yeah the other thing that i have learned from intuitive cook is spices are great <laughs> add lots of them and that really works so you know that it's all about how do you make it tasty without using too much of the food that that you, you shouldn't be eating too much of, basically.
0: And now, my kitchen friends, it's time for a quick break to see what I've been cooking up for you. If you ever feel trapped by recipes or wish you could get more creative in your kitchen, I made a free mini course. It's called Ditch the Recipes and it's a short series of five emails that will help you get started on your intuitive cooking journey. Sign up on the website at theintuitivecook.co.uk slash free or find the link in the show notes. And now let's get back to our conversation.
1: So we've learned to love garlic. I've confit a whole jar of garlic whenever I can or chili and Oh, loads of stuff that I've bought that I would never have bought before, and I've tried. You know, I'm using in recipes and things, not recipes, meals. So, like yesterday, we had jerk chicken and potato salad with yogurt.
0: Sounds good. So, so tell me a bit more about your intuitive cooking journey because you just mentioned it. How has it changed your approach or even your feeling around cooking?
1: I think it's just, it's really made me think much more. Like my coleslaw, it's kind of, if I chop this up small and mix it all together with some other things that are nice, it's not what anybody else would call a coleslaw, but it's fine. You know, it's that, (laughs) let's see what it tastes like. It's much more, get as many vegetables in as you possibly can. Get flavour in. And I like your, I really love your idea of patterns. And of course that would appeal to me because I'm, a bit of a pattern-y, process-y person myself, as opposed to a recipe person, which is more like a procedure. It's a kind of, oh, you know, so I I made the base for that coleslaw last week and I didn't put any of the oil and vinegar in it because I knew I could use it then as the base for a stew. It could be the sofrito, if you like, or you could dress it and have it as a salad. And it's that sort of thinking, I think, which is what, Intuitive Cook has given me this idea that you can make batches of things and use them for multi-purpose. multipurpose.
0: That, that's a really good way. I like what you said, you know, that uh, the difference between patterns and procedures, that's a really good way of putting it. And yeah, I, I often think that when I start cooking and I start with my chopped onion and some veggies and then so I'm sort of halfway through cooking and still at this point, it could take off to anything. It could become a stir fry, it could become a pasta sauce, it could become a stew, it could become a frittata. So it's it's interesting how the components can then be multipurpose, as you just said. So if you think of components rather than ingredients and how yeah. to batch them, that is really simplifying things.
1: Yes. And also that thing you you just said that every night I say, what shall we have for tea? And every night the answer comes back. What have we got? (laughs) I don't know. What have we got? So some days, if I really can't think, you know, there there are some days, aren't there, where you think, oh, I fancy this tonight and you know what you're going to cook. But a lot of days it's kind of like, well, okay I don't really know. So let's just start with this and let it work itself out as we go and you don't know what you're going to end up with but you do know that whatever it is it's going to be nice and it'll be whatever you fancied in the end so that's what I like that you can say you just keep adding things until it's right and there's no it isn't a recipe at all it's completely emergent but based on a pattern
0: emergent yes i like that and and then obviously this idea of repeating exactly the same thing becomes impossible but it strikes me that it's impossible anyway to repeat the exact same thing you can't replicate a meal because if you have two tomatoes the tomato tomorrow is going to be different from the tomato today and everything else is going to be different. And even you as a person are not the same person.
1: <laughs> yes. No man ever steps in the same river twice.
0: <laughs> so this idea that if you only followed the recipe exactly, you could replicate everything exactly, just doesn't, doesn't seem possible to me. So why even try?
1: Yeah. I mean, I do follow, if I'm trying to make a specific thing, like we had some people over for dinner and they're, they're vegans, so I I did follow a very nice Ottolengi recipe, and I would probably follow it again the next time I want to make it because it was very nice, and I would like to make it again. But once you've got the hang of it, you kind of think, oh, oh no, I forgot to buy that. Oh, well, never mind, I'll just bung that in instead, and it'll it'll be similar. It won't be exactly the same, but it'll be similar. It'll be similar enough. I know where the flavour's coming from. I know what. The different parts are doing to the dish. So it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, it's about becoming aware of exactly those things, what the different parts are doing. And once you start looking at a meal that way, it's not that difficult to figure this out because it is down to common sense in the end.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite things is if you haven't got mushrooms, use aubergines because they're a very similar sort of texture. Absorb flavour in a very similar way. So if it says mushrooms and you haven't got any and you have got aubergines, use aubergines. And then maybe extrapolate further and say, well, maybe a courgette would work or a marrow, but you'd have to cook it less. But Anyway, it's just that. It's just playing. I think this is very interesting because with what I do in my job, I'm a bit more prescriptive. So maybe this is a way of getting away from that and just being jazz instead of Mozart.
0: (laughs) Jazz instead of Mozart. That's another great one. So you just mentioned one sort of favorite tip. Use aubergine instead of mushrooms. Do you have maybe a couple of other tips you have come up with that you think could be really useful for other people too? Oh gosh.
1: Can I think of anything I think my big tip, which I got from Jack Monroe, is comfy garlic. So if you have a lot of garlic, and you can bear cutting it all up and peeling it all in one go. Cook it in olive oil and put it in a jar. And then you've got really good garlic and the oil for whatever you're doing in one go. Because I hate peeling things like garlic and onions. I really hate it. So getting it all over with in one big batch and then having the stuff to hand is a really good tip for me. And garlic is a hard one to keep because if you try and keep it uncooked, you can keep it frozen, but if you try and keep it other ways, it it can grow mould, which is not healthy for you. So, cooking it in oil first is quite good. And actually, what I did recently, we got some baby artichoke, and artichokes are a complete waste of time for me but these were baby ones so i stripped them all and got down to the artichoke hearts and confit them as well and that works really well so i think cooking things in oil and keeping them submerged in oil is a good tip
0: i do that a lot with tomatoes when i have too many tomatoes i do like a whole tray of but i kind of bake them until they are charred and then i pack them in a jar and cover with olive oil and then that that Mm. lasts a a good while and that's lovely
1: that sounds lovely
0: i really need to get to that garlic confit i haven't done that yet it's on my list i'm really using garlic so much that that would be a great great thing to have
1: Mm. other tips oh i think another one actually which i've learned recently is that adding pea flour to soups to thicken them is better than flour. So whether that's chickpea flour or I use Hodby yellow pea flour, it's a nice thickener and you're actually adding protein instead of carb, basically.
0: And I have also used almond flour, ground almonds to thicken something. Oh yeah,
1: I love almond. Garlic and almond soup is to die for. So it's it's garlic, lots of garlic and milk and almonds and plenty of flavouring plenty of salt and pepper, and it's just
0: nice. Talking about milk, I came across this tip in actually an Ottolenghi book about cooking pasta in milk, and then that thickens the milk, and then you kind of, and if you then add cheese, you get a sort of cheesy, milky cheese sauce without the need of adding any extra flour.
1: Yes, that would really work, and I, I think another one i have done often using something like pumpkin because when that cooks it goes down to a really nice silky puree using that instead of flour to thicken a cheese sauce and you've added another vegetable as well and the only thing is that it will split if you leave it but it makes a perfectly good cheese sauce so that's my other big tip I mean because we bought an induction hob to test whether it would save us money to have induction and I bought a portable one. So we effectively have one ring, as it were. So for the last year and a bit, I've been cooking on one ring. And so I've adopted a lot of things so that I can cook on one ring instead of having the whole hob going. And uh, I've learned to cook all sorts of things in one pan that would normally take you three or four, which is really good because there's less washing up. And actually it did. It has saved us a lot of money doing it that way because induction is very efficient
0: so what is as you have now a lot of experience with one pot adaptations what have you learned
1: well it's kind of like we, we were talking about earlier where you start off and you don't know what it's going to be well you can start off with a big pan and it's a stir fry and then you think oh no i don't really want to stir fry so you add some liquid and then you think no that's a bit soupy i don't really want soup well, I'll add some rice or I'll add some pasta and then it suddenly isn't soup anymore. It's something else. And I think that's what I've learned is it kind of, again, it doesn't really matter what you start with. It's it's how you end
0: up that matters. <laughs> and as long as you think about the flavour, it will be yep. tasty.
1: Yep, as long as you think about the flavour as you're going along. And actually, there's some things where... I don't know how many herbs and spices I've put in and you kind of think this can't possibly work with all this but somehow it does
0: yes somehow it does isn't that amazing
1: (laughs) yes you know I don't think I've ever yet cooked something that I needed to throw away because it couldn't be eaten in fact I don't think I've ever
0: cooked anything
1: where there was anything left on the plates so
0: well yeah it, it works that is you know something that I keep saying you know we think that we're going to ruin something just by changing a little something but actually it's really really difficult to ruin a pot of food and mostly what happens is that it might turn out to bland that that is by far the biggest problem and and the biggest challenge people have it's it's not that it it's inedible and if it's so burned that it's not edible which can happen That has nothing to do with your cooking skills. It only has to do with getting distracted.
1: Yeah, but even then, even a bit of char is really quite nice.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, in Persian cooking, the kind of burnt rice at the bottom of the rice pan, tadik, it's called, I think, it's actually a, a sort of a delicacy. You make the rice burn at the bottom of the pan and then everybody is sort of fighting over the crust. Yeah exactly <laughs> it's lovely
1: so yeah so i'd say overall what the intuitive cook's done for me is really broadened my use of flavorings really broadened it and i'm very pleased about that
0: yeah makes everything tasty <laughs> and and this is i think something that i say when you know when you try to adapt a recipe just make sure you understand where that recipe has the flavor and if you happen to adapt that bit, then make sure you add a different flavor or a different source of flavor or several flavors because yeah, you don't want to lose the flavor because then that makes food, well, not worth eating, makes it a bit meh, bland and boring. And, and this is another one of my, my pet peeves. This idea that, you know, we shouldn't be adding salt to taste to our own cooking while You know, 60% of the average salt consumption in the UK comes from processed food anyway. So that is kind Mm. of perpetuating this idea that home cooked food is somehow boring and processed food always is so yummy that you can't stop eating it. While we are making ourselves make bland food just by being afraid of salt rather than cut out the processed stuff.
1: And the same to an extent with fat. You know, not all fat is bad for you and it's often where the flavor is or where the flavor gets stored or held. And one of the things I love most is buying cream from the supermarket when it's reduced. Creme fraiche is even better and making my own butter Mm. because then I'm in control of the salt. And okay, I'm not making it on a professional scale. I don't get all the water out of it when I squeeze it, but it's not going to last me that long (laughs) so it's not going to go off before I've eaten it you know butter making was hard in the olden days because we didn't have motors but now we have hand whisks you know you can make butter really quickly yeah it's just a waste to do it with cream that isn't on sale but it's a really nice thing to do we've even tried cheese with you know milk that's being sold off we'll make cheese we made a lovely goat's cheese the other week
0: my kind of recent obsession is mayonnaise with a stick blender. Yeah, I've got to have a go. I haven't done it yet. I used to, you know, having grown up in the 80s, I grew up with this idea that mayonnaise is evil because it's full of fat. I wasn't immune to that back then. And then I got into this idea that it's all this processed crab and mayonnaise, so this is still bad. And I kind of always thought it's too difficult to make mayonnaise. And now that I started making my own and, and really it's only eggs and olive oil. I make it with olive oil and flavorings. I mean, what is possibly not healthy about that? So mm. I, I'm completely obsessed by that.
1: <laughs> now, we, you mentioned anchovies earlier and I'm thinking mm, mayonnaise with anchovies. Well, it's almost a Caesar salad dressing, isn't it? But that would be lovely. So, yeah, I've got to have a go because I have got, I think it's probably my favorite kitchen gadget is the stick blender.
0: Are you so, making your your butter with a stick blender?
1: No, I do that with a hand whisk. Right. OK. You basically just whip cream, just whip cream until it splits. Yeah. And then keep going. But turn the speed down when you hear it sloshing, because otherwise it will go everywhere. <laughs> I have had that happen. <laughs>
0: I definitely got to try that. Okay. Well, is that a good high to finish off?
1: Yeah. What do you think?
0: Yeah. Mm. Have you enjoyed it? Oh yes, I I love talking about food. This is you know this is the single reason why why I'm starting this podcast because I just love talking to people about food. Brilliant.
1: Oh, thank you. It's been really nice.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of At Home with the Intuitive Cook. Check out the show notes for links and tasty morsels. And remember, fresh episodes are served up every other Friday. Subscribe to stay tuned and keep exploring the joys of everyday cooking. Until next time, stay curious, trust your taste and don't forget, it's not rocket science, it's just dinner.